Thanks, music team. So grateful for your ministry. If you have your Bible, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's going to be page 555 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats. We're actually going to cover 5 and 6 uh, today. But we're just going to read 5, 1 through 20 right now. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats, it's page 555. Kohel says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and, grow, and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed that the matter for the high official is watched by a higher, and that there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much, and much vex, uh, vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's pray and then we will dive in. Father, Lord, we do want to pause now and ask for your blessing. We have just read your word, and we pray that we would approach it cautiously and reverently, and we pray that we would be dependent on your spirit. As me, as a speaker, I pray that I would only communicate what is true and helpful from this text. As those who are listening, whether in person or online, Lord, we just pray that, that there would be free from distraction and uh, that your spirit would, would guide their understanding of this text and make relevant, applicable applications. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to study this text. And we come to you now depending on you for all things because we need your help. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, I came across this picture. I don't know if you can see it or not, but this is one of those pictures where it's a, a whole bunch of different shades of color, right? Okay? And this is a screenshot of a YouTube video 
where it's a 20-minute YouTube video. I did not watch it all, okay? But what it does is it just slowly goes through the different colors. Maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you've seen something where all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute here. I think the, the color just changed there. It's really slow, and it just kind of starts going through all the different temperatures and the hues of color. And next thing you know, you're looking at a completely different color than what you were just a few minutes ago. You know, the reason why I bring that up is because Koheleth, the person who is writing this for us, is he's slowly, almost imperceptibly unfolding truth about God while calling us to ponder life under the sun. That's what's happening in this book. And the more I study this book, the more fascinated I become with it. It's just a fascinating book. What are some of the things that he's shown us about God so far? So far, he's shown us that God's work endures forever, chapter 3, verse 4. He also says that God has given us work to do. He also reveals to us that God gives enjoyment in work. He says that some of the rewards include wisdom, knowledge, and joy. He's also revealed to us that God made everything beautiful in its time. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at this idea how God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And so slowly, just like that color changing ever so slowly, and you're, you're starting to realize, oh, this is happening. This is what's going on here in the book. We see him just revealing different ha- hues and colors and temperatures about God as he's walking through this unique book. And really in our text in chapter 5, what he's doing is he's building on what he has been doing. He's been building from chapter 3 and verse 16. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about this in chapter 3, verse 1, that very famous, 1 through 8, that very famous section, there's a song written about it, right? Okay, the cycle of life. And then we talked about the central question of life. And he says, you know, what's the point there? This is chapter 3, verse 9. And then he answers that central question. He says that life is to be enjoyed. Life is a gift to be enjoyed. But then... We had, in verse 16 of chapter 3, we had this complicating factor called sin that was coming up. And remember, he says this in chapter 3, verse 16, if you want to look back there, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in a place of justice, even there was wickedness. In a place of righteousness, even there was uh, wickedness. And so he's saying that there's this complicating factor of sin that is is messing things up here. And then we see the same thing in chapter 5, in chapter 5, verse 8. If you have seen in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. And so we see the same theme here. And it's almost like these are bookends. So chapter 3, verse 16 is the start of it. And then he's starting to round this out in chapter 5 and verse 1 through 8. So chapter 4, he's addressing the wickedness concerning justice when he talked about oppression, envy, and the king's foolishness, those themes we saw last week. And then in chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 5, he's addressing wickedness in the place of righteousness. And then the rest of chapter 5 and 6, he deals with a reoccurring theme of work and wealth. Okay, so that kind of gives you the picture of what he's doing here in this section of Scripture. And so we're going to dive in with this. But before I do, if I'm going to give you a summary statement, it'll be this. Remember, God is in heaven and we're on earth. Therefore, God governs our worship and our wealth. And this is what he's doing to round out this idea of wickedness in a place of justice, wickedness in a place of righteousness. Chapter 4, wickedness in a place of justice. The beginning of chapter 5, he's dealing with wickedness in a place of righteousness here. So first of all, this idea of worship, worship under the sun. Worship under sun. We see this in the first part of chapter 5, as we talked about there. In verse 1, it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And so we see the, the, uh, the, the, the context right away here. He's talking about going into the temple worship. He's talking about the, when we go to worship God. And so for us today, it would be something like this. When we gather together and we come together to worship God, this is what he's talking about. He says, okay, worship. What, what, what does he have to say about this? And the first thing he has to say is he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer to the sacrifice of fools. So first of all, he says, we got to listen carefully. If we're going to enter our worship service, we have to listen carefully. Draw near to listen. That's what it says. So when we come together, the first thing isn't to speak. The first thing isn't necessarily to sing. The first thing isn't necessarily to contribute necessarily. It's, it's an attitude of listening first is what it is. Now again, should we sing? Absolutely. Should we communicate? Absolutely. And we're going to get there. But the attitude of our heart should be first and foremost that we're going to listen. Now remember, we talked about that complicating factor of sin in a place of righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 8. 
that complicating factor of sin in a place of righteousness, i.e. temple, i.e. church, that is diminished when we intentionally come to listen. That's what he's saying here in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, listen, you're dealing with this complicating factor, but this is diminished when you come with a spirit and a heart of listening when you come to the worship. Now, the implication is, is that God has something to say, right? That's the implication. If we're coming to, to listen, the, the implication is that there's something that we must listen for, listen to. Doesn't it bother you when you're talking to someone and you can just tell they're, they're not listening, you just tell. I mean, it, it's like maybe you're having a discussion with someone, and you can almost just see it. Like they're reloading, or they're coming up with the next thing that they want to say. And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, what about this? You know, it's like, okay, they didn't hear a word I just said. Doesn't it bother you? There's a comedian, I think his name's Brian Regan, 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 something like that, maybe some Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, uh, he, he has this little bit here. And he talks about like this, this what is it, me monster? Is that, is that what it is? A me monster? I mean, he's talking about when someone's talking. And so, all right, some of you have seen the video. You're laughing right now. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. He's like, you know, it's like these guys, you know, someone's telling a story. And there's a, there's a person that's always got, well, well, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that. I, I did that too. I, and I did more. I did more. And, and so he does this really funny bit. And I'm not a stand up comedian, so I'm not even going to try to do it. Okay. But the point is, is that he talks about like one time he's talking talking to someone, he's sharing a story, and the guy's like, well, I, I went to the moon, you know? <laughs> it's like, well, excuse me, I can't top that, you know? And so this, this idea, you, it bothers you when you're trying to have a conversation with someone, and they're not even listening. They're just waiting to share what they want to share. How, how much so with coming to a place of worship? I mean, you know, God has things for us to, to listen to through singing and through reading of the scriptures and through preaching of God's word. This is, this is what he, how he's designed it for us. And so if we come to a place like this and we're not even thinking about that or it's not even a, a, an intentional part of our preparation of coming here, Koalith here is saying, no, 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 don't do that. When you come to a place of worship, come to listen. What is God saying through the scripture readings? What is he saying through the sermon, the songs? What is he saying here at the table here? God has things for us every Sunday. The question is, are we listening here? And so this is what he's saying when he comes here. This is how we mitigate that sin in a place of righteousness. We come intentionally to listen. Now, this is one of the reasons why I, I send an email out every uh, Thursday or Friday, usually it's Thursday or Friday, and then we list all the songs we're going to sing, the scripture passages we're going to read, and all that stuff, and, 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 and we list it out there. And the reason why is because we want people to be prepared. We want people to think through some of those passages. We want people to listen to the songs if possible, or at least be familiar with, okay, this is coming here. It, it gives the idea of we're coming ready to listen, okay? We're coming ready to hear from the Lord. And so this is one of the reasons why we do that. So I guess the question is, is what distractions should we be removing from our lives to make listening better? And remember, we've talked about the math of 2022. Got them on the wall over there. One of those is remove distractions, right? Okay, so what distractions are present in your life and in your routine and in your rhythm that would keep us from listening to God? Not just on a Sunday morning, but what about throughout the rest of the week? What is distracting us from listening? There's the principle for us to think through. So if we're, we're going to, God is going to govern our worship. We see that he's in heaven, we're on earth, okay? He gets to call the shots and all this stuff here. And so he says, come ready to listen. But not only does he say that, but he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they're doing evil. Verse 2, do, but be not, or be not rash with your mouth. Let your heart be hasty, uh, let not, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before the Lord, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, he's not saying here you can't speak at all. He's saying speak cautiously. He's talking about um, um, this idea of vows, and we're going to get into that in a second here. But again, the complicating factor of sin in the place of righteousness, i.e. here, is diminished when we speak cautiously. We come ready to listen, and we speak cautiously towards one another, towards God in our prayers, things like this. So I guess the question is, is like, are we sincere in our speaking every Sunday? So we sing songs together, right? 
We just sang a bunch of songs, great songs, grateful for the musicians each and every week that, that lead us in that, put that extra work into it, and it just is so good and so helpful. But as we're singing, do we mean what we say? Or are we just, just reading words on a screen? You see, this, this is, I believe, rubs up against what he's talking about, Quiles is talking about here. Do you mean what you say? Now, again, we're not saying that you have to be perfect and just because then no one could sing. It'd be a really quiet song if everyone had to do this perfectly, right? But is that our heart goal? Is that our prayer? There's often times in my prayer when I'm sitting on the front row here, there's often that when we're singing a song like that, maybe I'll stop for a second and I'll just pray and say, God, may this be true of my soul. May this be true of our church. May this be exactly that what we're saying here, may it be really true resonating in our souls and may you use this to change us. You see, when we come to, we gotta come ready to listen but also to speak cautiously. This could be a healthy habit that we add. That's another part of the Master 2022 is healthy habits to add. So what about your conversations with God? He talks about these vows here, right? Okay, any rash vows? Any of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this, okay? All right, don't raise your hand on this. But I mean, I wonder how many of us, I'll include myself, at one time or another have prayed, Lord, if you do this, then I will. If you give me this promotion, if you give me this job, if you, you know, whatever the case may be, then I will do this, or I will never do that again, or whatever the case may be. Kohalath here is saying, hey, careful here. It's better for you to not make a vow at all uh, than to make one and not keep it. And, and, and we could talk a lot, I'm not going to get into the whole idea of vows throughout the Bible here, but it really what's going about it, this is not talking about, this is talking about those voluntary vows. You think of Hannah, you think of other people in the scriptures that made these vows before the Lord, and he says, okay, you made the vow, now you got to keep it, right? So speak cautiously. Again, the wickedness, sin and wickedness in a place of righteousness. He talks about it beginning in chapter 3, verse 16, and now he's rounding out here in chapter 5, verse 8. This is those bookends there. That's what he's saying. He's saying, here's how we diminish that. Listen carefully, speak cautiously. The Lord's Supper here is a place where we renew our vows every Sunday. So do we do this sincerely? Again, this is not a, play, a table where you have to be perfect and sinless the week, in order, the week prior in order to participate. No, that, that misses the whole point of it. But the point is, are we, are we approaching this sincerely? Are we approaching this reverently? Are we saying, okay, God, this is an opportunity for me to again publicly declare again my fellowship of you and how I want to follow you. Are you taking that seriously? Or is it just kind of part of what you do before lunch? Okay. Again, don't you see what, what Koalas is doing here? Don't you see how he's, he's shaping and framing what worship should look like because he's just dealt with this idea of sin in a place of righteousness here. And so we're to listen carefully, worship under the sun. We're to speak cautiously. And then we're also to fear reverently, fear reverently. Again, we see this down here in verse, uh, let's see, verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity, but God is the one who you must fear. And he's talking there, he's using this idea of someone when they're dreaming, they have you know, crazy stories and things going on that aren't true, and, and you don't want to follow that path. It's God who you must fear here is why he's using that illustration here. And so God is the one we must fear. And he will end the book with this admonition, but all throughout the book, he's going to give these little snippets, right? Okay, it, it, It's not as haphazard as people may think. This book, he's, he's, he's very uh, uh, patiently giving us a truth. Okay, one of the things that we need to understand about Ecclesiastes is that is like all these questions and all these things, he's moving up, and we know what's happening because we've read ahead. We know in chapter 12 he's going to come back to this theme here, right, and kind of answer some of these to the best of his ability, but, but in the beginning he's just causing us to ponder all this stuff here. The reason why he's outlined the book this way is because he says this is how we must live life. We must live life kind of trusting, wrestling with things we don't fully understand, and that's what he's doing in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and and then he gets to the end, and then he's like, ah, here it is. That's the same way our life is. We're, we're wrestling through life, and we're, there's questions that we're trying to figure out and everything. And then we get to the end of life, and we're like, ah, that makes sense, God. You see, this is the reason why he outlined the book this way. Beautiful book here, what we have in front of us here. But we're to fear God reverently. What this means is that God takes worship very, very seriously. 
I mean, he set something up. I mean, how would you like it if you set something up and you said, I want you to do this, and then you sacrificed and you gave to people and all this stuff, and they just totally disregarded what your wishes were? You wouldn't like that at all. You say, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. This is, this is not how it's supposed to be. In Leviticus chapter 10, you don't have to turn there or anything, but there's a story of Nadab and Abihu. Some of you remember the story that they were, at the beginning, this is like in the, t- the tabernacle starting, and so they're starting to worship God, but they go in a different way. They worship God in a way that's outside of how he's prescribed it, and they're killed. They go, whoa, whoa, that's harsh. Okay, and then in Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira. You have them that they, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were giving, and then they said that they gave more than what they did and all this stuff, and then, boom, they're killed. You think, whoa. I mean, it just shows you that God is taking this seriously. Now, the thing about that is you need to understand in both those situations, they're at the beginning of a new era of worship. You had the, the tabernacle was a new era of worship. And so God is laying down the law. He's saying, this is how serious I take it. The beginning of the church in Acts chapter 5, a different era of worship. Again, laying down the law and saying, This is how seriously I take this. And so, as we gather together every Sunday, we need to understand that God takes this seriously. This isn't something that he's just hoping that we show up because he, you know, wants to check off a a list or he, he, he just wants you to have some rhythm for you to do or some busy work for you to do. No, this is something that God takes seriously. This is the reason why we, we try to structure our worship services the way we do. This is why we try to, to spend a lot of time teaching God's Word and singing songs that are theologically rich and congregationally accept, uh, accessible because God takes worship services very seriously. We're to fear God reverently here. It shows that God has this great concern for proper worship. Remember, again, I go back to verse 2. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. That's Koheltha's way of saying He's big, you're not. He's in charge, you're not. That's, that, that's what he's saying here, okay? He's saying it in a nice way, but just remember, God's in heaven, you're on earth, okay? It's, it's kind of like, you know, the, uh, the, the, the first-year uh, nursing student or whatever that's doing the rounds, right? And then the doctor is like, okay, we need to do this. And, the, and then the nurse, first-year nursing student is like, hey, 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 no, I think we need to do it this way or whatever. This is this person's problem and everything. And then the doctor, in a very you know, humble way, of course, as all doctors are, is they, uh, they, they why did you laugh at that? So anyway, so, so they, 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 you know, they look at the nursing student, and they're basically saying, okay, when you've completed residency and when, when you've actually you know, done something for a while, then we can talk about this. But right now, you're not, and I am, okay? <laughs> you know, again, not all doctors are arrogant, okay, or anything, but the point, maybe I should have used attorneys as that. Maybe that would have been better. I don't know. But the point is, okay, when you, when you get out of law school, then you can talk to me, okay? Maybe we'll do it that way. I don't know. Whatever, whatever you know, uh, uh, occupation you want to insert there, you can put it in there. Just don't insert a pastor in there. So the point is, <laughs> is that the point is, is that we have here that, that you know, God's in heaven, you're not, okay? He's taking this very, very, very seriously here. So how do we apply this part here before we move on to the second half? Well, again, we talked about this Matthew 2022 of adding healthy habits and removing distractions from our worship service, right? From your heart, again, this is, this is how you approach this. Again, it's difficult at times, but let me just say, do you put any, any thought and prayer before coming to church on Sunday mornings? Think about that. You know, do you use some of the things that we provide to coach you into making so that you can have a, a running start, if you will, into the worship service? Um, I just encourage you to do that. I encourage you to pray before coming in. And, and maybe as you're sitting down, as we're getting started, say, okay, God, I need to hear from you today. God, we need to hear from you. Our church, not just, not just you, pray for all of us. I say, we need to hear from you. When Jeremy communicates the message to whoever's preaching that Sunday, just, Lord, please, please help him. You know, one of the most encouraging things that people say to me is they say, man, I was praying for you today. Or I was praying for you, whatever. That is just so encouraging. Pray for one another. Come ready to listen. Speak cautiously. And when you do speak, speak boldly, but cautiously. Okay? Sing out. 
Sing these truths to God in a way that's showing your reverence and your fear of Him, not in a trembling way that you can't stand it, but there is this is idea that you love Him and want what's best. So fear God, listen to Him, mean what you say, boldly approach God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says that we can boldly approach God because of Jesus. Now, when we consider the holiness of God, okay, and so I've given you a couple examples, of one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, Nahab and Abihu, and then we have uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, both of them killed because they offered uh, wrong worship to the Lord. That should cause us to be like, wait a minute here, <laughs> all right? It's, a, it's any wonder, right, that any of us are still alive, right, okay? But here's the reason why we are, okay? We often look at Jesus' death and resurrection for our hope, and we should, but let's not forget about his obedience, like we talked about in today's catechism question. A major component to the gospel message is that through faith, we get credit for Jesus' obedience and righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's a th- cool thing to think about here. So when we talk about worship here, okay? According to Hebrews, Jesus worshiped God while on earth. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 says that Jesus sang praise to God in the midst of the congregation. He's quoting the Psalms there, but it's a tribute to Jesus that he sang praise to God in the midst of the uh, congregation. So imagine this. We have the Son of God. We have Jesus on earth, and he's with Peter, and he's with John, and he's with Judas, and he's with all these people, and he's going to the synagogue. And then there's, there's, there's praise and singing to the Lord, and he's walking and he's praising God and he's worshiping God, okay? And so you have these sinners next to him and we have the perfect lamb, the perfect one, singing praise to the Father. What a beautiful sight that would have been. But you know what makes it beautiful? It wasn't necessarily the quality of his voice. It wasn't necessarily the words he was saying. It was that he was perfectly worshiping the Father. And by believing in him, that gets credited to us. Isn't that an amazing concept? So this is the reason why when we come to worship service, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to worry about being struck down, dead, because we've, we violated. We, as long as we're trusting in God and going to Christ and through Christ, this is the beautiful thing about being in Christ. So by faith in Christ, the perfect worship now belongs to us. And so this is part of what it means for us to be in Christ or what some people call the union with Christ. Our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because the perfect worship was offered by the Son. Now, this doesn't mean we lose the cautious approach, for sin can have an effect on our fellowship with God, but we have no condemnation if we are in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So, this is worship under the Son. So, he's, in chapter 4, he's talked about the idea of righteousness and dealing with oppression, foolishness, and envy. And then chapter 5 now, in the beginning of chapter 5, he's dealing with wickedness in a place of, uh, of righteousness. Chapter 4 is justice. This is righteousness. And then now we get to verse number, uh, let's see here, verse, verse 10. And it seems like this is just this hard pivot that Kohelis does here. He's talking about worship, and then he starts talking about wealth. You say, wait a minute here, where's this? I mean, I mean, it's like we're trucking, we're going down, okay, I see what you're doing here, <laughs> you, know, yeah, you know, it's like you're on the belt line, you know, you're on the belt line, you're coming up on fish hatchery and everything, and all of a sudden the guy from Buffalo, like, <laughs> you know, because he, you know, oh, he, missed, he almost missed his exit, you know, that type of thing. Is that what he's doing here? I don't think so. Because what he's doing here is he's coming back to one of his main themes in the book after talking about God's transcendence and his discussing his discussion concerning sin in unlikely places of justice and righteousness. Now he says the same transcendent God gives direction to everyday concerns, namely wealth and work. So he says, okay, he's dealing with these things in high places and unlikely places, and now the same transcendent God, he has something for you in everyday life. And what is, more, what is more basic to everyday life than work and wealth? Really nothing, right? I mean, how much of our life is determined or central around some type of income or money, right? We all need money to live. So he says, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that for a minute here. Now, interesting thing about this section Chapter 5, verse 8 through chapter 6 through 9 is listed in, in a form of a parallelism, okay? Um, it's known as uh, a chiasm, okay? All right, here, let me see if I can get my clicker to work here. So 
chapter 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 9 is known as a chiasm, and it gets its name from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our English letter X, okay? So the Greek letter chi, maybe you've seen this in, you know, uh, you know what do you call those, fraternities and things like that, chi, whatever it is, you know, and so chi looks like an X, okay? So what our English alphabet would be X is the Greek letter chi. Now, the reason why it's, it's, it's listed that way is because I told you it's a form of parallelism, so it looks like this. So there's point A, and then point B, point C, point B, point A. Okay, see how that's laid out? Okay, so you have point A in, in the beginning of the text, and you have point A with a little line at the end of the text. Those are parallel. Then you would move further into the text, you'd have like point B. And then right before the last point, there's the same parallel. And then you have like the middle here, like we would call in this, for this example, point C. And what this is doing is it's a way that was written so that people would remember it well, but also so emphasis could be seen. Okay, so when you see this laid out here, you see, ah, this is what he's getting at here, okay? So I'm going to illustrate this text, but here's what I'm going to do. I thought it'd be a little bit easier. Instead of having it uh, uh, horizontally like this, I'm going to illustrate it vertically, okay? So all I've done is just kind of you can look at it one of two ways. Depends on your, how your mind works. Either I flip the X or I just left the X the same and did from the bottom. However you want to do it, okay? All right. However your mind works, okay? This is what we're going to do, okay? So we're going to walk through this and you're going to kind of see what he's getting at here. It's a beautiful, beautiful outline here. Okay. First of all, the first point that he does in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, and then the parallel is at the end of chapter 6, 7 through 9, as he says, wealth does not satisfy. Okay, all right, so you see we have the beginning of the text and the end of the text. It's the same point he's making, okay? So chapter 10, it says, For he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. He talks a little bit more about that. And then in chapter 6, in verses 7 through 9, he says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage is the wise or the fool and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself among the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. So here he's making in the beginning of this section and the end of this section two parallel or one point in parallel, and that is that wealth does not satisfy. Now, everyone here has heard that before. No one here, when I said wealth does not satisfy no one here went, that's good. <laughs> Memorize that. No one did that, right? Okay? I mean, everyone's heard that before. But why do I have to say it? Because we all think we're the exception. <laughs> we all think that, okay, no one else in this world, but I'm the exception. We, we, we get pushed towards that, Right? We always think that the next tier, whatever that is, is going to satisfy us. Only that when we get there, we want the next one. You know, I don't have my phone on me, but, you know, the, the, you, know you get the, the new iPhone or whatever it is, and you're like, oh, I got the new iPhone. So good. And then, like, a year later, you're like, hmm, now they have 12 cameras. <laughs> That's amazing. I need that. So you get the new iPhone, and it's like, oh, now this will babysit my kids for me. <laughs> I need that. You know, whatever the case may be, right? Okay, you know, it's like we, we always want the next thing. You know, in 2018, I think it was, um, Harvard Business School, they did a study. They surveyed 4,000 millionaires in the United States, okay, 4,000, and they asked them, I was not one of them, okay, so they asked them, okay, okay, they said, how much money would it take to make you happy? Okay, all right, so... 4,000 millionaires, here's the question. Each millionaire was asked to report how much they currently had, okay, and then how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, and then how much money that they thought they would need to get to a 10, okay, on the happiness scale, okay, all right? I guess this is the thing, happiness scale. Okay, 26%, okay, of the largest response was assigned to 10 times more. So they said that they would need, 26% of the 4,000 millionaires surveyed said they would need 10 times more of what they had in order to be happy, fully happy. 10 times, okay? 
the largest possible option given, that was the largest one, 24% chose I would need five times more of what I currently have in order to be happy. 23% said two times more. Only 13% of the 4,000 people said that they currently have enough to be happy. Okay? Most surprising at all, this answer was consistent no matter how much money the person had. That means that if someone with $100 million was just as likely as a person with $10 million to select that they needed 10 times more money. And so the lead researcher, he suggested the problem for so many millionaires is comparison. The question is not so much about how much or do I have enough, but really do I have more than those around me? So basically... What, when all is said and done is he says that everyone agreed that they would need at least two to three times more in order to be perfectly happy. Okay? Wealth doesn't satisfy. It really doesn't. I mean, we, 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 we're on that road. We're on that trajectory. It was, we have this, just that next thing. And it don't think about wealth in only in terms of dollars, right? Okay? In the bank account. A wealth can be measured in a lot of different ways. You know, I got the next thing. Health here is just saying, hey, life under the sun, just understand there's going to be this push towards always getting the next thing and always improving all the, just, it's not going to satisfy. He parallels that in the beginning and in the end of this. Um, not only that, um, and what, one of the things that he says there, in, and I'll just point this out in verse 11 here, he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, when you have stuff, there's a lot of people that are going to come knocking. That's what he's saying. He says, when you have things, this is why it doesn't satisfy, because other people are going to want it, okay? And we've seen this all through people who win the lotto and all this stuff. Everything. Well, I read one story about an NFL player. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Forgive me. But after he retired, he went bankrupt. And when they were talking with him, because he had a lot of money, they said, you know, what happened? And he says, at one time, I was paying 60 cell phone plans. He only had one phone. But man, he was just paying for everything. He was, this, is, this is what he's saying here. When, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? He says, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy anyone around you. It doesn't satisfy your own soul. Okay, so, so first part of this, we see here what he's getting at here is wealth doesn't satisfy. What does he go next? He says, well, wealth can actually hurt. So he moves from it doesn't satisfy, and now he says it actually can hurt. And we see this in chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. He says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. We also see this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, which is a really, um, at first glance, you're looking at this and you're seeing, he's like, wait a minute here, what is he saying here? He says, there's an evil I've seen. This is chapter 6, verse 1. That it lies, it's heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it's a grievous evil. Then he talks about if a father has a hundred children and lives many years, so all the days of life are many, and his soul is not satisfied, but his, but his life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. He talks about that it comes vanity and goes in darkness and his name is covered. Moreover, he has not yet seen the sun or anything, yet the stillborn child finds rest rather than he, the person who lost everything. It actually hurts. It makes life miserable in some ways. And so this, what he's talking about here is this wealth that can actually be not just unsatisfying, but when wealth is lost, people often become depressed or despondent, even suicidal. It can actually hurt. You, if you just Google stories, like if you just were to Google stories of people who won the lottery, you'll see story after story. I think I've shared one in a sermon illustration before uh, a while back. You'll just see stories of people whose lives are just incredibly hurt by this. So what Koheleth is saying here is he's saying it would have been better not to have it at all. It would have been better to be more like a stillborn child, not even had the life, because you wouldn't have had the pain and you've gone immediately into rest. That's what he's saying here. 
I don't know if you, anyone recognizes who this guy is. Gary Dahl, is there anyone? I don't think anyone would. Okay, I couldn't remember this guy's name. Okay, you can tell by the picture. It's been a while ago, right? Okay, so it was in the mid-1970s that Gary Dahl, he was talking with his friends who were complaining about all the work involved in caring for pets. Feeding them, walking them, cleaning up after them. And so Gary Dahl, he kidded with them that he had a pet that never caused him any trouble. The pet rock. You remember the pet rock? Some of you remember the pet rock? Okay, all right, in the 70s, right, 80s, all right. So surprisingly, the joke started to take off. He recruited two colleagues as investors visited a building supply store, bought a load of smooth Mexican beach stones at about a penny apiece, and then the pet rock hit the marketplace in time for Christmas of 1975. In a matter of months, 1.5 million pet rocks were sold. Some of you bought them, and you're not admitting it, I know. (laughs) Pet rocks made this guy a millionaire practically overnight. But despite, you know, he, 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 you know I mean, I, I, I just can't imagine. Let me just stop the story for a second here. I, I just can't imagine this, you know. It's like, hey, Dad, you know, this is what I want for Christmas. What do you want? A rock. I'm like, all right, head outside, buddy. <laughs> you know, Christmas shopping just got easier, you know. So half the time I don't know what we get our kids for Christmas anyway, but uh, that's beside the point. So I'm one of those dads where I'm just as excited, you know. Like, oh, you got that's so cool. Yeah. All right, buddy. My wife's toes are going, yeah, yeah, we got that. So that's good. All right, a little insight into our home on Christmas morning. Okay, all right. So, but here, even though he became a millionaire practically overnight, he became to regret his success. See, the craze went away like all the fads do. It died out and it was replaced with something else. After his sudden wealth, he went through three marriages a lawsuit, and this is the thing that struck me when I was reading this, as tragic as those two first things were. He says, they fail and failed attempts to match his previous success. See what he was doing? He kept trying to do the next thing, next big thing, the next million, the next thing. I don't know what it was. I don't know what he was trying to do. At one point, he said this, sometimes I look back and wonder if my life would have been simpler if I hadn't done it. Talking about the pet rocks. Failed attempts to match his previous successes. Wealth doesn't satisfy, and when we keep looking at it to do so, we keep looking for it to satisfy, we end up hurting ourselves and others in the vain pursuit. Three marriages. Think of the carnage, that that drive, and all that stuff that... You see, Kohel is here, as he's saying here, in chapter 6, he's talking about these ancient goals that every man would have had in the ancient Near East. Children, long life, honorable burial. That's what every ancient Near Eastern man would have wanted. And here he talks about, you know, even if you had some of these things, then it did not satisfy and actually hurt them. He talks about that a stillborn is better off because they didn't experience the hurt of wealth and has received rest that wealth never brought to the man who lived a long life and had lots of children here. So as we're walking through this, this, this uh, chiasm, we see that wealth won't satisfy. We see wealth can actually hurt. But now we get to the middle, and this is his point. This is chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And here it is. That true wealth is enjoying God's good gifts. This is what he gets at. This is the middle here. Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. In all of the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Notice this. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For you will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. True wealth is enjoying God's good gifts. Look how many times joy is mentioned in these verses. Enjoyment, chapter, verse 18. Enjoy, verse 19. Joy, verse 20. This goes back to chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, and we see this, this theme popping up in this book, right? Popping up. Enjoy. Enjoy food and drink. Enjoy your work. 
enjoy it. You see, this is what he's getting at in this book of, again, just, we don't understand all what's going on in this life. We see the things that don't satisfy. We, we see sin in places that there shouldn't be, and we're dealing with all that, and it's confusing, and it's heartbreaking at times. It leads us to despair, but he's, he's pushing us towards this idea of, God wants you to enjoy this life knowing that we're trusting in him. The things, the, the, the questions that we don't have answers to, we can trust the one who we know that does have the answers to. And we can just enjoy this. And again, that doesn't mean we don't care. That doesn't mean we bury our heads in the sand. It doesn't mean we don't, we, don't, we don't mourn or anything like that. That's not the point. But the point is, is that we can just enjoy what God's given to us while we wait in fear of him while we wait for him to set all things right. Yesterday, you know, my wife and I, we were, we were driving, Anook and I, we were driving down the road, and my, grand, or my grandparents, my parents are in town this weekend, and, and uh, so the kids were with them, and so that meant Anook and I had to go do some errands. You know, our date usually involves, like, going to, like, Costco or Kohl's or something like that, you know. You know, we're... we're we got the dates down. But anyway, so we were going to Kohl's, I think it was, and, and we just grabbed a, a bite to eat together real quick and everything, and it was a beautiful night last night, wasn't it? I had the windows down. We're driving. We're heading over to Kohl's. Anuka's sitting next to me. And I just went, this is a good gift. This is a good gift. I can just... Enjoy being with my wife, driving with the windows down in a nice day, and grandparents are taking care of the kids. It's a good day. I love my kids. They love me. It was a good day. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Just, I think sometimes we try to make things way too complicated. This is one thing Ecclesiastes has been just helping me so much with. Again, there's questions to ponder that I don't have answers to and that Kohelet doesn't give us. But he's pushing us. He's pushing us towards fearing God. All the stuff is going to get worked out in the end. And we don't have, there's, there's, remember we saw in chapter 2, there's some crooked things that just won't be made straight. Embrace that. But look around in this wicked world, in this place where there's wickedness and they're all the wrong places. God says, enjoy. Enjoy the simple things. Enjoy it. This is what he's called you to do. It's a beautiful book. Absolutely beautiful book. It reminds me of a movie, right? Oh, let me just say this. Uh, Yeah, it reminds me of a movie. It's a wonderful life. Remember this? You've seen the movie, so... You know, last week, Michael talked about Scrooge. This week, I'm talking about It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Christmas theme, apparently, here. Um, but the point is this. You remember George Bailey? He saves his brother from drowning, gets deaf in one ear, loses hearing in one ear as a result of it. He runs the modest building, Bailey Building and Loan Company in, what was the city name? I remember, I remember. What was the city name? Bedford Falls. Good. I had to look it up. You guys are smart. Okay, all right. So Bedford Falls. What does he long to do? He longs to go see the world, right? He, wants to, he just can't wait to get out of Bedford Falls and go see the world. But his commitment to family, his commitment to the town, keeps him there. And he can never go. In fact, he's, he's, he's about ready to go on his honeymoon, remember? And he has to stay back because of things that are coming up here. His Uncle Billy works for him. And then you remember it, the, the climax of the movie or the main, you know, the conflict of the movie and the plot. Uh, uh, Uncle Billy loses the deposit that he's going to go to the bank, and that's all the money that's going to keep this thing afloat. And then someone finds it. Who finds it? Mr. Potter, right? Mr. Potter, right? Okay, all right. He finds it, doesn't turn it in because he knows it's going to sink Bailey's building and loan company who's wanted to buy out the business and stuff like this. He's the richest man, most influential person in Bedford Falls. He knows that this is going to just be the, the end of Bailey Building and Loan Company. In his distress over the reality of going to jail, George Bailey, because he knows that if he defaults on all of his loans and stuff, he's going to jail. You remember, he goes to the bridge on that winter night. He's ready to jump. And he does jump, right? And then, 
somebody jumps in after him. Who was it? Clarence. Clarence. Now, let me just pause here. This is not a theologically accurate movie about angels, okay? I have to say that. The preacher in me just can't use this illustration without going to there. Okay. All right. You, you got that point. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So you can still enjoy the movie, right? You know, enjoy it and everything. But just when it comes on, just you know, pull your kids aside and be like, okay, here we go. You know, this is bad angelology here. Okay. But okay. All right. So, you know, Clarence, you know, he, he shows him all of what Bedford Falls would have been like without him and all this stuff and everything. You remember the story. At the end of the movie, George is back in his right mind and family and friends are coming to his house. You remember this scene? And they're dumping money and they're putting money to pay this debt, right? Okay. Someone at the end, I don't know if you remember this, they yell out, they say, George Bailey, a toast to him, the richest man in Bedford Falls. Remember this? Remember this? Okay. What is the movie saying there? There's a lot of money before George. That's not what the movie is saying why he's rich. He's rich because of all of his family and all of his friends that have come to him, right? That's, that's, that's the, true, the true wealth there, right? So, this is one of the reasons why chapter 4, he's emphasizing companionship. See, Coelho here is reminding us that while there is much we can't explain about life under the sun, and even though that there's wickedness in places of justice, in places of righteousness, we are to enjoy God's good gifts. And it's not just money. In fact, it's not going to be money. It's going to be the gifts that God has given to us in people and relationships in our church and what he's called us to do. So I need to make this application as I bring this to a close here. Money isn't evil. Money doesn't necessarily cause hurt. But misusing money and overvaluing money, that's what causes pain. So the question is, what do you do to enjoy life? What do you do to intentionally enjoy God's good gifts? Do we really believe that wealth doesn't satisfy and actually can hurt us? Or do we think that we are the exception? Remember, God is in heaven and we're on earth. God gets to govern our worship and our wealth. So how do these things relate? Well, a proper view of in the use of wealth is only made possible when we're worshiping correctly. That's how these things relate, is that we're not going to have a proper view of wealth unless we have a proper view of God and worship Him. So here's my encouragement. Enjoy eating and drinking and working, the basics of life. Instead of rushing past those things, stop and enjoy them. This is where you find true riches in life. Remember the hymn, Be Thou My Vision? Riches I heed not, nor vain, empty praise, man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. This is what Kohalath wants us.